0: By David W. Blight. This is book 41 and 52 for my 2020 reading list. And I'm going to start by reading from page 744. The crowd in the pews were on their feet cheering as Douglas reached these crescendos. Then the exhausted old orator folded his text to sit down. A reporter for the Evening Star recorded, thus spoke Frederick Douglass with uplifted eyes and arms, as if to invoke heaven to bear witness, and the echoes of his words were drowned in a tumultuous storm of applause. Douglass remained slightly bent during the address, wrote the journalist, but performed with voice unshaken. Just as he had begun his career 54 years earlier, he fought with his only real weapon, the Infinity majesty, and power of words. Douglas concluded, based upon the eternal principles of truth, justice, and humanity, your republic will stand and flourish forever. Then he dropped his arms and bowed. End quote. Last year I read Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, covered it on this podcast, and loved that book. It was 76 pages and it was some of the most powerful words, paragraphs, chapters that I've ever read. Each paragraph actually felt like a chapter. He would pack so much in to a paragraph. Each chapter almost had the feel of an entire book. It was one of the most important books I've read for this project, and it created a desire in me to want to know more about this man. And so when I saw this book pop up, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, saw that it was a pulitzer prize winner and saw that it was a, a large book my interest got sparked because I wanted to know more. And Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass stops around the year 1844 when Douglass escapes slavery. So he's born in 1818. Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass goes to about 1844, but he lives until 1895. So what happened in those years? That's what I wanted to know and that's why I picked up this book. So who was Frederick Douglass? Well, I encourage you to, to listen to the other episode as well, covering narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, because that talks a lot about his, his early life, but, uh, just I'll cover a few basics here. He was born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey in Maryland in 1818. He took the name Douglass after he escaped from, from slavery. And, uh, that, uh, it, um, slaves that escaped often took different names so that they would not be found. And so that uh, Douglas is the name that he took. It's based off of character in a Sir Walter Scott poem. The poem is Lady of the Lake, and there's a Highlander clan name of Douglas. And so Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey became Frederick Douglas and kept that name the rest of his life. He was born a slave in Maryland in 1818 to a black mother and a white father. Uh, the white father was probably his slave master but he never found out for for sure it actually kind of made me wonder if with the the dna testing now i just kind of wonder if if his descendants if they if they uh, did that if 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 they'd be able to find out i don't know if it goes back that far but um be curious to 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 see because he he kind of guesses who might be his father but you you you're never sure and Douglas even asks different people throughout his life and just never gets a, a solid response. At the age of six, he's dropped off by his grandmother to begin work. And so that was uh, the last time he saw his grandmother. And if you just try to imagine that as a six- year old of being dropped off by the the woman who raised you and n- <laughs> that's it. You're, you're, you''re you start working from that point, you are a slave. Uh, un- unbelievable. Uh, reading led to a, a huge breakthrough in his life. One of uh, his slave master's wives started teaching him how to read. That was a no-no. And uh, the, the husband of that wife who was teaching Douglas to read told her that if she t- continued to teach him, it would forever make him unfit for the duties of a slave. Douglas caught on that uh, reading and education was important because of that and uh, taught himself to read he had a conversion experience in the year 1831 where he became a Christian and began reading the Bible extensively in on Ma- on Monday September 3rd 1838 he escaped by train from Baltimore to New York City And this was one of the things I wanted to know because in in Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, he, he says this, on the third day of September, 1838, I left my chains and succeeded in reaching New York without the slightest interruption of any kind. How I did so, what means I adopted, what direction I traveled, and by what mode of conveyance I must leave unexplained for the reasons before mentioned end quote. So again, that's from narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. He does not want to get into how he escaped because he wrote this book in 1844 before the civil war, before the emancipation proclamation. Slavery is still in play at this point. He doesn't want to give anything away. So I, I wanted to know how, how did he get there? And I was thinking, you know, maybe some crazy story, you know, he underground railroad or, or something like that. But, but he, he took, he took the regular railroad, uh, but he got someone's free papers. So in, in Baltimore at that time, there were some free black men, and he got one of their papers and, and used those to, and pretended he was that person, to, to, to be able to get on the train. And uh, he went from Maryland through Delaware, which was also a slave state, into Philadelphia, which was his first time on free soil, and then on to New York City. And, and then he uh, eventually settled in in, in uh, Rochester, New York. From there, he became dedicated to the cause of abolition, was was helping other fugitive slaves gain their freedom, uh, get either to New York or even further on to Canada. Always had a lot of people in and out of his household, and then began speaking. And that is one of the main things that, that Frederick Douglass is known for. He would just do these extensive tours speaking. He did them... Um, in, uh, in, in Britain, in England, Scotland, and in, in Ireland, and all over the, U, the United States. So he met with a lot of different presidents. I'll get into that a little bit later in this episode. And he became Marshal of Washington, D.C., and here's what that entails. I'll read a little section here. Shortly after the inauguration in early March, Hayes so that's uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, put Douglas' Douglas's name forward for marshal of the District of Columbia. The appointment as marshal was the first time in American history that an African-American was nominated for a position that required Senate approval. In effect, he helped run the federal court that once adjudicated fugitive slave cases. A little later on, he said, one paper could not resist the ironies of this former outlaw slave now so central to law enforcement in this role, uh, end quote. Also, uh, one of the roles for this position of, uh, as being Marshal of DC is that he would march the outgoing president out and then march the, with the incoming president coming in. So he, he would be right up there with the, the outgoing president and the incoming president. He had great worldly success in the, in the sense of, of speaking all over the world, um, making great, change uh, in in people's mind speaking to black audiences to white audiences he also had a really tragic family life um, and and in the, in this book it gets it gets in the good the bad the ugly everything about uh, uh, about Douglas's life he suffered greatly he lost his wife he lost his son he lost 10 grandchildren to disease and then he died on February 20th 18. 95 at the age of 77, and he died of a heart attack at his house. The subtitle of this book is Prophet of Freedom. And there's a quote at the very beginning by Douglas, and it's this there is a prophet within us forever whispering that behind the scene lies the immeasurable unseen. So the author of this book has a twofold argument going throughout the book. One is that Douglas's life was guided by the Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament. We see that coming through in his knowledge and his use of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then also the story of Exodus. The second part of that argument is that Douglas himself was a prophet. It's a really fascinating way to look at this man's life, his, his use of the old prophets, his knowledge of the old prophets, taking what they said and applying it to his time but then also being a prophet himself. So we'll get into that other parts of this episode, but um, that's, that's really uh, the the strong point of, of this book. As for stats, uh, this one, this one took me 30 hours to read right at uh, 29 hours and 58 minutes. That was over 28 days. So it was uh, roughly 27 pages per day as it is a 764 page book. It was worth every minute of those 30 hours. And I'm Glad to have spent those thirty hours with with Frederick Douglass. For the rest of this episode, in the following two segments, I'll, I'll be covering this. And in, in segment two, the three big items that stuck out to me, um, how other books that I've read for this project interacted with this book, and then also some from some Frederick Douglass quotes. And then in the final segment, segment three, I will cover the one thing, my one key takeaway in this book. I want to put a quick feeler out there in hopes that someone who's listening might have some more information. When I was reading this book, I was I was amazed at the trips that Frederick Douglass did, not only in the United States, but also abroad. And on, on a couple trips, he, he spent a lot of time in Scotland. Once in 1846, and then again in 1860. And he just traveled all over Scotland and would give would give speeches. This was the time that George McDonald. Was alive in Scotland, and George MacDonald is my wife's favorite author. I read a book by him this year and uh, last year, and I I plan to to read at least one book a year by by that author. So I've I've started getting really interested in in him. And as I was reading this book, I was I was just wondering, did George MacDonald and Frederick Douglass ever meet? I looked at Douglass's itinerary uh, in in his trip in eighteen forty six. He spoke in Aberdeen, which is about 40 miles from Huntley, which is where George Macdonald lived. So it's possible that, that McDonald could have traveled to see Douglas speak uh, or even uh, seen him in, in Glasgow or, or Edinburgh uh, in, in one of the other speeches. So it's just a curiosity on my part. If, if you have more information on that, I'd love to know. The other reason that, that that it sparked an interest is I saw a familiar term used by both men and that the term is fair play. Douglas used it in in this way. Here's a quote from from this book: His speech, according to one account, came with two stern messages: prescriptions for self help and hard work for blacks, and for whites, his plea to give the freedmen fair play and and to let him alone. End quote. For George McDonald, fair play he he often spoke of fair play with the justice of God. And so here here's a quote by MacDonald. The justice of God is this. He gives every man, woman, child, and beast, everything that has being fair play, end quote. So that term, it just stuck out to me in, in the fact that both men used it so often. And I, it could just be coincidence, but it got me thinking. I, I, I just wonder if they met. And it'd be, it would have been, it'd be so cool to know if the two men met. But so if you if you do know if, if that's written somewhere, I just a quick search online didn't didn't put anything together of the two men having a, having met. But uh, I'd be curious if they did. So back on to the to the episode here, I want to cover three things that stuck out to me in this book, and the first is this: just how Douglas's life paralleled the narrative of the life of the nation. So let let me uh, just read a, a quick paragraph here, and this was as Douglas was returning to areas where he had once been a slave. The newspaper wrote this, He left our county under compulsion. He comes back by invitation. Not to ask pardon to those whom he had disobeyed, but to extend pardon to those by whom he had been wronged. He left as a fugitive. He comes back our equal before law. End quote. This theme comes up a lot in in this book, where Douglas returns quite often. He even meets his old masters, his old slave masters, and this, this contrast of, of freedom versus slavery. But after the Emancipation Proclamation, after the Civil War, Douglas traveling to the areas that he was once a slave. And so his life spans this chasm. He, he grew up under slavery. He escapes to freedom, and it follows the story of what's happening in the nation as a whole. And it's just a, a, an amazing thing. There's another part where he returns to Baltimore, and I want to read this part. It was as if he announced that one of the swift-winged angels, the sailing ships of the bay of which he had yearned to fly while imprisoned by Covey, had brought the exiled son home. End quote. What that refers to is a very vivid part of narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. It's one, th- one thing that I, I always remember from, from that book. And it's a part, it's about midway through the book, and he is looking out over the Chesapeake Bay. And he sees these ships, and he sees these huge white sails on these ships. And he says it is, oh, let me read it. This is from narrative of the life You are loosed from your moorings and are free. I am fast in my chains and am a slave. You move merrily before the gentle gale, and I sadly before the bloody whip. You are freedom's swift winged angels that fly round the world. I am confined in bands of iron. Oh, that I were free! Oh, that I were on one of your gallant decks and under your protecting wing! Alas, betwixt me and you, the turbid waters roll. Go on, go on! Oh, that I could also go! If I could fly, Oh, why was I born a man of whom to make a brute? End quote. So it's just this vivid imagery of him looking across the Chesapeake Bay. And then we go back again to the quote I just read in, in uh, prophet of freedom book. It was as if he announced that one of the swift wind angels, the sailing ships of the Bay on which he had yearned to fly while imprisoned by Covey, had brought the exiled son home. So again, that, that, that shift of before and after narrative comes up a lot in in different ways as well so just the narrative of Douglas's life further on constantly reinventing himself but staying with a solid core the question is brought up in this book what does a radical reformer do if his cause triumphs and that's that's where Douglas found himself uh to to some degree after after the Emancipation Proclamation, after after the Civil War. He had a lot of work to do after that, but he he constantly reinvented himself, but but stayed true to himself as well. Takes it a step further though in this book in that it's not only his life that is the narrative, but Douglas creates a narrative of what is going on in the United States at this time. Actually the the disunited states in, in many ways. And so Douglas had a, a, a narrative ready for that. And and I want to read this one section here. <clears throat> Douglas envisioned the revolution the country now faced as an excellent instructor, especially about the nature of the enemy. He saw an America experiencing an epic upheaval. The drama needed a plot and direction, heroes and villains, and Douglas possessed a ready made narrative. The slaveholders and their insatiable desires for more expansion, profits, power, and therefore human... Chattel to achieve their aims, had overreached and brought down divine wrath in a political revolution to resist them. Douglas was fond of the Greek proverb that he employed in one of his Sunday lectures, whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. In editorials later in the summer, he would put it in other ways, the slaveholder must be master of society, otherwise he cannot long be master of his slaves. Douglas's greatest hope was that a sufficiently outraged Northern people would fight to defeat this mortal enemy of humankind, end quote. Second thing that really stuck out to me in, in this book was his meetings with Abraham Lincoln. I didn't know this. Uh, Douglas met with Abraham Lincoln three different times. There was actually an invitation for a fourth time. And Douglas had a speaking engagement he had to turn it down and and apparently regretted that uh, because it wasn't long after that uh, that Lincoln was assassinated but uh, there were some really amazing scenes, some pictures of these two men meeting that that show up in this book. There was a stunned Douglas when Lincoln invites him to the, to the white house it says here, Lincoln stunned Douglas by inviting him to the white house for an urgent meeting that in the view of the black leader would change almost everything. Once again, this is the second time that they met and there's an amazing scene of Douglas waiting for the meeting. As Douglas sat in the reception room at the White House, awaiting his interview with the president on August 19th, Douglas had a chance encounter with Judge Joseph T. Mills of Wisconsin, who was also awaiting an appointment. In his diary, Mills recorded telling the president the story of how dark it felt in the reception area. So dark that there in the corner, sa- said Mills, I saw a man quietly reading who possessed a remarkable physiognomy. I was riveted to the spot. I stood and stared at him. He flashed he raised his flashing eyes and caught me in the act. I was compelled to speak. Said, are you the president? No, replied the stranger. I am Frederick Douglass. End quote. <laughs> I love that. Check this out. I saw a man quietly reading who possessed a remarkable physiognomy. Frederick Douglass is about to meet with Abraham Lincoln, and he's just sitting quietly in the corner reading a book. I, I just love that. I love that scene and just the the self-possession and the the calm of of being able to just sit there and read while you're about to meet the president but just further to the this man who is born into slavery being asked being personally invited by the president to meet with him a final meeting was right after the second inaugural address by Lincoln uh, Douglas goes to the White House after the, the day's festivities, and here, here it goes. Then followed a scene for the ages, as Douglas tells it. Here comes my friend Douglas, announced the president for all to hear. Lincoln said he had seen the order in the crowd that afternoon listening to the speech and was eager to know his reaction. Douglas demurred, urging the president to attend to his guest. But, for, but focus fully on the unmistakable black man with a large mane of graying hair, Lincoln insisted, there is no man in the country whose opinion I value more than yours. Mr. Lincoln replied the former slave from Tuckahoe, that was a sacred effort. We do not know what smaller, deeper talk ensued as the other guests crowded into this special meeting of two parts of America. We can only guess at the thrill in Douglas's heart knowing that the cause he had so long pleaded a sanctioned war to destroy slavery and potentially to reinvent the American Republic around the principle of racial equality might now come to fruition. Standing in the white house, East room, the Chesapeake Bay, no great distance out the windows to the East. Douglas could fairly entertain the belief that he and Lincoln, the slave, the slaves and the nation were walking that night into a new history. Just an amazing scene there. And again, uh, sorry, the, Quote ended amazing scene there just, and again, Chesapeake Bay brought back into, into the mind, uh, this, this, this shift this change of, of slavery to freedom and, and, uh, these, these meetings with, with Lincoln that were, were just so special book also talks about the transformation of Lincoln, uh, in early 1860s, he was actually advocating for colonization, which is where People in the whites wanted blacks to move out of the United States, either to Africa, Africa, or to a part in the Caribbean. And and Lincoln was was promoting this. He didn't think whites and blacks could live together, and so he was actually even trying to get Douglas to promote, help him promote this. And so you go from that to to Lincoln making this inaugural address and douglas saying these are the things that i've been saying so one of those one of the themes that co- that started coming up in lincoln's speeches was that of rebirth i'm going to read a section here that kind of talks about this this connection this breathtaking metaphor of rebirth in many versions had long been douglas's favorite metaphor as well he had himself delivered variations of of the Gettysburg Address throughout the war. Now, with the resounding implications, by the end of that terrible year of 1863, Lincoln and Douglas spoke from virtually the same script, one of them with the elegance and restraint of a statesman, the other the fiery tones of a prophet. One spoke with an eye on legality and public opinion, while also listening to his evolving moral self, and the other as though he were the national evangelist. In Frederick Douglass's view, during the final year and a half of the Civil War, one America died a violent, necessary death. Out of its ashes, a second, refined America came into being amid destruction and explosions of hope. End quote. I skipped around there a little bit, but just this rebirth motif, but I I loved what it said there of Lincoln and Douglass speaking from virtually the same script. And just that that connection. Douglas had been speaking this for many, many years. And he was at first very, very disturbed by some of the things that, that Lincoln was saying and, and and believing. And then to see Lincoln change, to see Lincoln begin saying the same things as Douglas must have just been amazing. And then just for these two men to have met three different times, just astonishing. Douglas met with many other presidents after that, including a just a really disturbing meeting with Johnson, who became president when Lincoln was assassinated. Uh, just a very derogatory meeting uh, in in every sense. Uh, the president basically ridiculing Douglas, but um, was respected by by many of the other presidents. So that was my second thing. The just these meetings with. Uh, Lincoln, and then also other presidents. The third main thing that stuck out to me in this book was, was this idea of, of Douglas being a prophet, and then also pulling from the prophets of old. So pulling from from the Old Testament, from Exodus, and then the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah, especially. So read different parts of how this played out in, in Douglas's life. So he pulled Isaiah from his arsenal and delivered what he believed the churches deserved. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot away with it. It is iniquity. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Douglas bore the news that the nation's crimes stood condemned by the prophets of old in the people's own sacred texts End quote The next one the rhythms of Douglas's language are oratorical, and they were deeply indebted consciously or not to his life of reading and using the King James Bible. The Bible gave texture to American prose, and the King James translation, according to Robert Alter, became the wellspring of eloquence in the National Book of the American People. That is where any puzzle about Douglass' source of style should be solved. End quote. And one more about uh, douglas's prophet douglas believed events gave evidence that a moral chemistry and an interventionist god now drove history forward he had rehearsed for this moment for more than 20 years a prophet issues the warnings and must be ready to reap history's results words faith inspiration and abiding pathos argues abraham heschel are the prophetic stock in trade a prophet spares no piety he is an assaulter of the mind the words of a true prophet say heschel are a scream in the night rooted in a sense of history and timing may be all with a reason scream. Douglas discerned that Babylon might now be falling end quote. The other area in which Douglas was a prophet was a lot in the sense of calling. Well, first predicting the some sort of a war as a result of slavery. And then once it started, calling it what it was from the very beginning. He called it the abolition war and was said it was a hundred percent about slavery. I'm going to read different, different things leading up to the war. Some of these many years before the war said slavery will be attacked in its stronghold. The compromisers of the constitution and the cry of disunion shall be more fearlessly proclaimed Till slavery be abolished, the union dissolved, or the sum of this guilty nation must go down in blood. The next, the contest must now be decided and decided forever. Which of the two, freedom or slavery, shall give law to this republic? Let the conflict come and God speed the right. That was in March of 1861. That first one where he said slavery, slavery will be attacked in its stronghold was in 1848. And then we have, uh, a little later on, Douglas saying this on page 352. From the beginning of secession, Douglas had called the crisis the slaveholders' rebellion." Since Fort Sumner, he had called for an abolition war and nothing short of it. When we consider his impatience with the Lincoln administration's halting and sometimes hostile approach to emancipation, it is worth contemplating the lens through which Douglas judged the war's purpose. In August, Douglas righteously claimed that everyone knows that this is the slaveholder's rebellion and nothing else. The war, he said, was the work of a privileged class of irresponsible despots, authorized tyrants, and bloodsuckers who fasten upon the Negro's flesh and draw political power in consequence from their legal crimes. We didn't go into this war to put down slavery. This is Lincoln talking now. We didn't, put, we didn't go into this war to put down slavery, but to put back the flag back. For I never should have had enough votes to send me here if the people had supposed I would use my power to upset slavery. End quote. So again, just interesting to see Douglas saying one thing, Lincoln saying another, and then Lincoln Lincoln changing changing his um his his tune later on. Uh, but but just that prophetic voice of of Douglas in calling it the abolition war from the beginning. I want to highlight a few different books that that connect deeply with with this book, and these are all books that I've read for this project. The first is, obviously, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, and if you've not read that book, you need to read it. It's it's short, but it is, man, it, it packs a punch, and uh, you may even want to read that one before you read this this one, uh, Prophet of Freedom. Next is the, the Bible. It plays such a huge role in Douglass' life, and as the author does a fantastic job in this book. Just shows how Douglas's reading of the Bible, his reading of the prophets, led him to become the man that he was. The third book is The Prophets by Abraham Heschel. In one of the quotes I just read, uh, David Blight mentions Heschel. And that's a book I read last year, The Prophets. And it, it was just cool to see that uh, referenced uh, over and over in this book. And the and the last one that uh, I, I thought about was The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. And that is a book about a, a, a serial killer, but it's also a book about the Chicago Exposition of 1893. And what's interesting is I, I went back and looked at this book and there's not a single mention of Frederick Douglass. But Frederick Douglass played a pretty big and important role at that Chicago exposition and this book by David blight gets into into that role and and the things that he did there so uh, I just found it interesting in in obviously you can't go into to all, every detail in in a book like the devil in the white city but um I, I just thought found it found it really Fascinating that there were there was so much that Douglas did at that exposition and and it didn't even make it into that that book. Finally, here I wanted to go through a a few different quotes by Douglas and do five of my my favorites. Here's the first: I will not detain you long, for I stand here a slave, a slave at least in the eyes of the Constitution. It is a slave by the laws of the South who now addresses you. My back is scarred by the lash. That I would show you. I would I could make visible the wounds of this system upon my soul. End quote. Number two, he is the best friend of this country who, at this tremendous crisis, dares tell his countrymen the truth, however disagreeable that truth may be. And such a friend I will aim to be. End quote. Number three, the invisible chains of slavery may take many generations to break. Again, one of those more kind of prophetic utterances, the invisible chains of slavery. So he had experienced the visible chains, the, the, the chains around his arms, his, his, his leg. He had experienced that, but he knew going forward, it was not going to be an easy switch. And so he talked about these invisible chains of slavery that will take many generations to break. Number four, my day has been a pleasant one. My joys have far exceeded my sorrows and my friends have brought me f- far more than my enemies have taken away from me. End quote. When you read this book and you see all that Douglas went through, for him to make a statement like that is, is, uh, is pretty pretty amazing. And number five, a man must defend himself if only to de- demonstrate his fitness to defend anything else. A man must defend himself, if only to demonstrate his fitness to defend anything else. In these episodes, I always cover the one thing, I end each episode with the one thing I always hope to remember from each book. Oftentimes it's also the thing that has stuck out to me the most as I've read the book, and that's the case with, with this one. I'm going to read a little anecdote from the third to last page in the book. As the meal ended, all repaired to the sitting room, and the old orator, Douglas, demanded they all sing. Grandson Joseph took the lead on the violin, and someone else played the piano. Grimke remembered poignantly. In the singing, he, Douglas, took the lead. The guests left this unforgettable image of the host. Standing in the doorway between the sitting room and the hall, with violin in hand, he struck up, In thy cleft, O rock of ages, and sang it through to the very end with a pathos that moved us all. It seemed to take hold of him so. Grimke witnessed Douglas's spirituality in full force. I can almost hear now the deep mellow tones of his voice and feel the solemnity that pervaded the room as he sang the words, in the sight of Jordan's billow, let thy bosom be my pillow. Hide me, O thy rock, thou, thou rock of ages, safe in thee. Grimke felt a kind of presentiment that the end was near, that he, Douglas, was already standing on the very brink of that Jordan over which he was soon to pass. End quote. There's a lot going on in this scene. First, Douglas's grandson is there, and his grandson plays the violin. He is actually a concert violinist, and one whom Douglas himself has, has given a lot of money to to be able to pursue this love of the violin. So the grunt grandson's there, and he's leading on the violin. You also have Douglas standing with his own violin and Douglas taught himself to play the violin and would play it at different points in his life. Third, this story is being told by Grimke who is um, a a Presbyterian minister who had actually married Douglas and his second wife. So uh, close friends and he had him over, Douglas had him over at, at his house. Fourth this is three weeks before Douglas has a heart attack and dies in this same exact house where this scene is taking place. And fifth, knowing that, knowing that this is just three weeks until he dies, he, you, you see a man here standing, singing with his full heart and singing with his full soul he did not lose his faith. Amidst it all, as you, as you read this book and you, and you see the hardships, you see the, the hardships in his own family, you see what he went through as a slave, the pain, the, the derogatory comments he had throughout his life, getting kicked off trains for being black, all of these things. And yet with three weeks to go in his life, he stands and he just sings in his deep baritone voice, this hymn with everything inside of him. Oh, to have been a fly in the wall at that, at that meeting, at that dinner. It reminded me of, an, of another, another one thing that I pulled from the book about Einstein. And I covered Walter Isaacson's book about Einstein a few few years ago, I believe. And the, the one thing from that book, the the one story of of the man, was not the the speeches he gave or the time in front of all the all these people or the theories he came up with. It was when Einstein was invited to a, a prayer meeting, and Einstein was Jewish. He was he was atheist in 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 a lot of ways in in his beliefs, but he was invited to a prayer meeting. Christian prayer meeting in the United United States. And that prayer meeting was called together to pray for the Jews being persecuted by the Nazis in Germany. Einstein had experienced some of that himself. He'd been effectively kicked out of Germany where he was working because he was Jewish. He had family members and friends who uh, were being persecuted and were being killed by the Nazis. And So as a Jew, or even as an atheist, the last place you would ever picture Einstein showing up is at this meeting, a prayer meeting of Christians, but he goes and it's one where they just go around in a circle and pray. And when it comes to him, he has his violin with him. He stands up, picks up his violin and plays a song with all of his heart and then sits down, never never uttering a word. And that was my one key takeaway from that book, and it, and it reminded me a lot of this of this scene in, in Douglas's life. Of all the adulations, of all the things that that Douglas did to have this scene at the end of his life, that spoke more to me than, than all of the other, these other things that that he did in his life. Just this this strong faith to the end. So that's my one, that's my one thing, my one key takeaway. It was such a beautiful scene, such a beautiful thing to, to consider. When I read books, I have different methods of marking to signify when something is important. So one of them is just simply underlining and I'll underline, uh, or kind of mark off whole sections if, if it's, if I think it's important, if it's even more important, I will put a a star by it. And then I will write that at the end of the, the chapter. And then in the end of the book, I will also write it. So if, if there's a star by it, there's there's a good chance I, I kind of rewrite that at the back of the book. So I can pick off any book in my library and 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 just open the back cover and and look at my the notes, the main things that I wanna to remember. If something is truly Astonishing! If something just kind of blows me away, I, I I go one step further and next to the star I write "Wow." For these episodes, for these podcast episodes, I can usually go back through the book and talk about the things that I wrote "Wow" next to, and it's, for any given book, it's usually just one or two things, and that will oftentimes be my my main thing, my my one thing that I highlight. In the episode. And for something to have a wow by it, 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 it means that I was not expecting it. And it it, it was a powerful, powerful thing. The reason I, I share this is I had a ton of wows that I wrote in this book about the life of this man. And as I was reading it, I was, I was kind of thinking in my head of, of how I could do this podcast episode because it's such a huge book. And maybe I'll just cover the things that I wrote now wow next to. But as I was preparing for this episode, I wrote wow so many times that this episode would have been too long. And this this was just one of those books. It 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 was it was full of of amazing stories of of an amazing life. I, I really want to encourage you to read this book. It is long, it took work. But it is one of the most important books I've read for this project. I would place it probably in the top 10. It's not because of the prose. It's not because of, of the incredible writing. Yes, it, it won a Pulitzer. But that's when you read this book, you're not thinking about the author. And much to the author's credit. This book wows you because of the man. Because of Frederick Douglass and what he did and what he said and the profound impact he had and continues to have on the United States. Throughout reading this book, I, I had a really strong desire to hear Douglas's voice. And I, I just didn't know enough about the history of recordings to know if, if at the time of his death in 1895, if that was even possible. But that question was actually answered in this book. And towards the end of Douglas's life, he's at a, a friend's house And this friend has a phonograph. And here are some of the things that, that Douglas says. The phonograph brought me nearest to a sense of divine creative power than anything I have witnessed before. It raises the question as to the boundary of the human soul, the dividing line between the finite and the infinite. Douglas's reaction to this machine revealed much about himself. He found something solemn in the thought that, though being dead and turned to dust, a man's voice may yet live and speak. His reaction was genuinely spiritual. I feel, in uh, this is quoting Douglas, I feel somewhat over this instrument in your hands, as a man feels when he embraces religion. The faces and forms of our departed were important, but the thing makes us hear their voices. Uh, that's the end of Douglas's quote. But I'm still in uh, Blight's. Quote here, We have no evidence that Douglas ever recorded on a phonograph, but he desired nothing more than that his spoken and written voice would survive infinitely for humankind. Survive it did by other means. I thought that was beautiful, and how much I would love to hear that bar- baritone voice giving some of these speeches. We, we don't have that, but it doesn't really matter because he left his writing, he left his speeches, he left his words, his portrait and his prophecy. This book, to recap is, is an important one. It covers Douglas. It covers his whole life. It covers the glory, it covers his failures, It covers his successes. His life spans the narrative of the biggest shift in the history of this country. He spoke to black and white Americans, He wrote some of the most memorable books and gave some of the most important speeches in our history. He looked for guidance to the past, to the prophets, to Moses, and to Exodus. But he also looked to the founding documents, to the Constitution. He at times despaired of the people and at other times called them to live out the Constitution and the amendments and the prophets. His life is one that is worthy of study. It is worth 30 hours of your life, at least to study this man. And I strongly encourage that you read this book. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. I'd love to hear of your experience with Frederick Douglass, if you've read his other works. He has uh, other books. I, I have a desire to read the other ones that he has written. Um, at some point, though, it'd be a good for you to read this one as well, this this biography. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that at bookstotitans.com forward slash support. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram and Twitter. And the website is stocked full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I'll be back next week discussing another book from my 2020 reading list. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out.